this is Small Cap Stocks Today, your best source for information on small cap stocks coast to coast with your host, Dave Donlin. Now, from the Stock Investor Daily Studios, here is Dave Donlin. And thank you so much for joining us for another episode of the Small Cap Stocks Today podcast. I'm your host, Dave Donlin. Really appreciate you joining us today, and hopefully you're off to a great new year here in January 2020. have a very special guest to join us. As you know, through the year last year in 2019, we had some great guests on here. Stephen Moore, The Economist was on along with a couple of special guests from Fox Business, Edward Lawrence, Jackie DeAngelis, and a great guest from CNBC, Dom Chu, who I believe will be joining us again in the very near future. And uh, today is no different. We actually have a gentleman by the name of Robert Greyfeld. Uh, name might ring a bell. He's the former CEO and chairman of NASDAQ. He's got a brand new book out called Market Mover, Lessons from a Decade of Change at NASDAQ. Robert Greyfeld is the former CEO and chairman of NASDAQ. He is currently chairman of the Virtu Financial, a leading financial technology and trading firm, managing partner and co-founder at Cornerstone Investment Capital, a financial technology investment firm, and a board member at Capital Rock Finance Ware and Runway Growth Capital. Bob is chairman and founder of the USATF Foundation, which is an organization dedicated to supporting both athletes from disadvantaged backgrounds and our next generation of Olympians. He also serves on the NYU Stern Board of Overseers. So without further ado, we go back Back to December in this pre-recorded interview with Bob right now where we talk with Bob Grayfeld, former CEO and chairman of NASDAQ and author of the brand new book, Market Mover. Bob, welcome to the program. It is my pleasure to be here today. <laughs> Great to have you on here. It's actually uh, an honor to have you on here. The name of the book, Market Mover, Lessons from a Decade of Change at NASDAQ. You actually, your background is fascinating. You were a software entrepreneur and somehow, some way, became uh, the CEO and chairman of NASDAQ. How did that come about? Yeah, so certainly people identify me as a financial type, a Wall Street type, but really I, I self-identify as a technology person. That's what I'm doing post-NASDAQ. But I think what happened was you had NASDAQ was part of the NASD, wanted to separate from the NASD, which the, was the regulator, and in part of that process, they took an investment from a Silicon Valley uh, private equity firm. That private equity firm correctly identified that you, when you take away all the really smoke and mirrors about being an exchange, NASDAQ is a technology company. So I had then came into frame with my background. They knew that they had to invigorate NASDAQ with an entrepreneurial spirit and not a regulatory spirit. And that was where I also fit. And it just kind of happened. Interesting. The tenure that you were there at NASDAQ was 2003 to 2016. Uh, it, it grew by leaps and bounds over that period of time. Technology at that time was was really huge firsthand. You know that. You were out on the forefront of, of dealing with all these different types of people, the, the Bezoses of the world, Zuckerbergs, etc. You know, your relationships with those people, how did that really impact NASDAQ, the actual exchange? Well, let me start on a different point. You know, when I came to NASDAQ, the world was dominated by physical trading floors where people would shout at each other. Uh, and I knew that we could automate that and the shouting could be represented in code and we could develop the algorithms to represent that 
that logic. And that was the one of the exciting things we had, right? So in 2003, it was a different era. By the time I left in 2016, there was no physical trading floors left in any equity market in the world. So we had a great time with that. Now, the technology companies self-identified with us being a technology exchange. And one of the great pleasures of being the CEO of NASDAQ is you got to meet uh, the CEOs of your listed companies. And typically, you think it'd be very hard to see a Jeff Bezos or Steve Jobs or Bill Gates. But what's interesting is that every single CEO cares about his or her stock. And running NASDAQ, where their stocks are traded, gave us a natural entree. The, the book talks a, a lot. You, you incorporate stories and, and as we talked about, the, uh, your successes and your setbacks. It, it's a fascinating read because you really tell it very well from your own perspective, it, very well put together. Each chapter, you actually have lessons uh, that, that you learned as part of your journey. Um, dealing with these people, and, and, and you, you talk about the actual exchange, did you literally have to go to companies and actually sell them NASDAQ to become a, a, a listed uh, company on there? Definitely. Uh, so I, I say this, you know, what I got to meet a, many, many CEOs and they were all very smart and they were all very hardworking. So I've wondered to myself, why did so many of them fail? And the average tenure of a CEO is around three years and probably shrinking. And I definitely came to the conclusion they failed because they did not work on the right things, right? You have too many things in your to-do list and you have to choose those things that you need to do well that will be fundamental to your success. And you have to be comfortable, which is a very hard thing with doing other things not well, if you follow what I'm saying. And I think uh, when I look at NASDAQ, I had to choose those things that had a lever for my time. Right, that would lever just not the hour I spent on it, but would, would redound into the organization. So the listing business actually would drive me somewhat crazy because when I'm talking to a CEO one on one, right, that's the uh, definition of not having a lever. Right, but still, it was fun doing it, but it wasn't the best use of my time minute by minute. Uh, to answer your question directly, most CEOs wanted to hear from the CEO of the exchange. Right. And we had a very, very capable listing group and they did all the hard work. But for the vast majority of them, I had to talk to the CEO and clearly, uh, you know, help the cause. And what I would say to our folks who ran the listing business, you have to win the listing versus New York Stock Exchange. Right. And then I will make sure we don't lose it at the top level. What you could not do is just rely on a CEO call to overturn the will of the people, right? The CFO or the corporate secretary. I could confirm it, uh, but I couldn't overturn it. So I said, "You have to win. Uh, you know, win it down below." The, uh, the the title of the book again: Market Mover: uh, Lessons from a Decade of Change at Nasdaq. Our guest is uh, Bob uh, Grayfeld. Bob, you've done guest appearances on CNBC and in a lot of other places out there, and and the skill set you have is incredible. If anybody doesn't or is not aware of of the type of things that you had to go and do, uh, picking up the book and reading your story is is very interesting. And a lot of people have talked about the book being not just about leadership lessons, but really. It, it, it talks about management and management skills as well, right? Uh, completely, right. You, uh, and you talk about 
going on CNBC, I like to tell the story. When I came into NASDAQ, I knew exactly what we had to do on the technology side. I knew exactly what we had to do on the transaction processing side, the running of the exchange. I felt very comfortable there. But I came to NASDAQ and I quickly realized that I was basically woefully unprepared or barely competent on one, the publicity aspect of being a CEO of NASDAQ. I had not been on uh, television before. I didn't have a beat reporter from the Wall Street Journal following me before. I was woefully unprepared for the Washington requirements where you know, we were regulated closely by the SEC and that was overseen by the Senate Banking and the House Financial Services Committee. And I had to go down in that environment. So I think back now, uh, you know, I'm writing this book, sitting here having been successful. But let me tell you, I wasn't so good at many things in the beginning, and I had to learn them on the fly. So, you know, with respect to management, I think uh, there's a lot of management lessons there. And if I was to leave your listeners with one thought, you have a management code in your mind in terms of how things have to work. But there's times, it's always interesting, where your own set of rules that you live by don't necessarily apply. And in the book, I talk about the first you know, weeks and months I'm there, and I had to be this autocratic CEO because I did not believe we had the time to build a consensus within the management ranks when I didn't know the management ranks. And I was just laying down the law, obviously removing people that I thought, didn't think were for the right way to do it. And that was the right thing for that particular point in time. But clearly, if you want to grow the organization, we wanted to grow and become global, become multi-asset class, you had to build up the management team to do it. And that's the general rule. But clearly, when you drop into a dire situation, you have to manage by the exception. With the, one of the things you're talking about there with, on the bad hire side, you, you really go into detail in the book about the bad hire side. Don't hire bad on top of bad. And you, you cite an example in the book where there was a CEO running a, a large company, very well known. Um, you could check it out actually in the book, uh, Market Mover. And he actually said to you that uh, hiring bad people after bad people cost him somewhere around $100 million. It's an right. uh, interesting story, uh, to say the least. So I would say this, you know, uh, I had a guiding principle where we tried to hire 80% of our uh, management team from within, 20% from outside. Now, you couldn't go 100% from within because then you clearly become insular, you don't evolve. But the thing is, when you hire from inside, that person has really been interviewing for two, three, four, five years. You know every strength and weakness about that person, and you know whether, you know, really very clearly if they're going to fit into that role. When you hire from outside, you certainly go through a rigorous interview process, but it cannot be as precise. It cannot be as accurate as promoting somebody you've known for the last four years and seen them in all different types of situations there. So that's one guiding principle to mi minimize what you talked about, because the opportunity cost of a, of a bad hire is, in fact, massive, right? Because you slow the organization down instead of accelerating the organization. And that, that's just a very difficult situation. Yeah, absolutely, it is. And again, in the book, you talk about it, how it's a 24-7 job. 
you when you left, correct me if I'm wrong, it was about an eleven billion dollar company you were running at the time was uh, as we as we talked about already about a thirteen year tenure for you. When you left there uh, and you have this uh, huge company that uh, you were m very instrumental in, in putting together and growing and, and, and taking it to the next step, needless to say, uh, and you left there, were you thinking about uh, telling this story in a book? What was the impetus to actually write this book? Yeah, definitely. We had thought about it before I left NASDAQ and started on it, but it was impossible to do when you're a full-time CEO the way I was. So it was definitely in the work. And I think the impetus is one from a general interest point of view, right? I think there's uh, an interesting read. So I came to NASDAQ in 2003. That was the aftermath of the bursting of the dot-com bubble. Uh, we then really had, I call it economic headwinds until we had the excited, excitement of the Google IPO. And then we had that period of time that we went crashing into the Great Recession. Right. And then we lived in a kind of, you know, suboptimal state for years after that. But we had to understand how we could compete and how we could grow, even though the uh, we had economic uh, headwinds. So there's a great cycle there. And also with respect to NASDAQ in particular, in the story, we start as a part of the regulator. Uh, we demutualize. We go public. Uh, we were a single asset equity exchange in the U.S. We then become a global exchange. We go cross asset and not just equities, but obviously we do all forms of derivatives and fixed income there. So it was a very interesting journey. And in every step of the way, you know, we made mistakes, we learned things and we got better as we went. And so it was clear to me uh, that while it might be uh, not as exciting as a interesting murder mystery. There was certainly a lot of interesting things for people involved in the business world to to read about. If if you're running a business, you know whether it's big or small, the book a lot of great stories in it, and and as you said, leadership lessons from a business perspective. But really, when you take a look at those lessons. Uh, chapter by chapter, Bob, it, it's really lessons you can apply to your own your own personal life. You talk about, you know, uh, taking a look at it from the other company's point of view, walking in their shoes, so to speak, and and a number of other things that you actually uh, touch on um, as far as the lessons go, and it's chapter by chapter, really interesting read of. It, it also covers a wide range of areas, uh, as you kind of alluded to, technology, markets and turnarounds, deal making, public relations, innovation and crisis management, all of this your story over the 13 years in this book. Uh, it's, it was a fascinating ride. You know, we had certain parts of that story where we were quite public when we bid to buy the New York Stock Exchange and the Department of Justice told us we could not do that. When we bid to buy the London Stock Exchange. That was highly, a lot of publicity. And then on the negative side, when we bungled the Facebook IPO, uh, we were definitely in the public eye for a period of time. And you know, the book talks about, you know, somebody yeah. who is at the center of all those things. And uh, like I said, I hope people find it interesting. Yes, it, it was really an interesting part of the book uh, where you talk about Zuckerberg and Facebook IPO and uh, one of the great stories that's in the book. You, you mentioned um, part of the learning curve uh, that you had coming from a background as a software entrepreneur was dealing with Washington. And one of the things that's in the book uh, was uh, uh, part of these five steps that you said that you, you're going to do these five things within the first 100 days. And one of those was reduce bureaucracy. Uh, 
And then you got the learning curve of going to Washington, which, as you know firsthand, I'm sure from your own experience, you find out there's nothing but bureaucracy there. When um, you, you take a look at that journey, what was the really the lesson that you learned there going uh, from the software entrepreneur into D.C.? You're reducing the bureaucracy in your own company, yet you still had to go there because the regulation being such a huge part of what you're doing. It, it was. And one time I was not uh, looked upon kindly by the SEC. I was quoted in the interview saying that the SEC moves uh, I, at the speed of erosion. But that would be an insult to erosion because they're actually slower than that. So, you know, we had to do our, our lobbying. But I, I said to our folks, I said, you know, just because we can't get something through the SEC, we can't sit here and just bemoan that fate. We got to figure out what to do, right, that's doable. So what is the art of the doable? So we'd have those kind of conversations. We have the long-term movements. We'd try to get, you know, the regulation to advance. But you just couldn't you know, run your business at that at that cycle. Uh, so, you know, we had to learn to adapt. And, you know, as you say, I came from a technology background where we had zero regulation. You wanted to do a new thing, you did a new thing. And that's not the way it worked in the exchange world. And as you go through the book, you saw that I evolved the business model where we became more and more of a technology player, right? So we had developed this great technology really uh, worldwide leading to compete in the U.S. equity market, then we, you know, productize that for the global market. And so in that world, we got into less regulation, and it certainly spoke to my background and, you know, what things we can do well. So NASDAQ today is certainly the dominant provider of uh, whether it be trading technology, clearing technology, surveillance technology, technology to exchanges around the world in addition to broker-dealers and regulators. Yeah, I mean, and when you're talking about brokers, broker-dealers, regulators, and then you get into the whole trading aspect, and like you said, the clearing and market makers, et cetera, I mean, the rules and regulations are obviously out there. I had a securities exchange attorney tell me one time that, you know, depending on what the administration, who that is in Washington at the time, it's like a pendulum. As far as the laws, you know, the, the, you know, the pendulum swings from the right and it swings all the way over to the left and it kind of goes back and forth and it's, it, it gets really tight and it gets loose. Where do you think we are right now in the market with the regulations and rules that are out there? Yeah, I, you bring up a great point. I remember when Dodd-Frank was passed and people were saying it was 1,100 pages and who could read that? You have hmm. to understand that 1,100 pages, that's a blueprint. Then the regulatory authorities, whether it be the SEC, uh, the CFTC or the Treasury, fill in the blanks, right? Because they leave so many blanks there. So it's then a question of how do you interpret the blanks? And that's what speaks to your point. So depending upon how you're looking at that, uh, it's either going to be a tighter or a uh, uh, looser regulatory side. So I would say right now, from a regulatory point of view, you're kind of at a middle ground. I think coming out of the great credit crisis, we had a hard, uh, hard turn to making everything tighter. It just felt safer to do that. So I think we matured past that we have probably a good balance uh at this point and i think you see some of that uh you know with respect to the vocal rule where they've loosened that up where the banks are going to be able to really service their customers better than they could in uh, the first incarnation of dodd frank and certainly hopefully that brings some additional liquidity into the marketplace 
Understood. The the, the market uh, right now, uh, jobs obviously doing very well. The economy is doing well. The markets uh, setting some some record highs and just continue to set record highs. What's your take on the market right now? I mean, uh, as far as where it is right now and where it might potentially go, what's your feeling on it? Well, my, my feeling uh, very strongly is we're in a Goldilocks environment, and it's hard to appreciate that day by day. But right now you have a Fed who is accommodating, right? Uh, and you have uh, an inflation number that remarkably has stayed very low. Uh, so you have you know, a great drivers for economic success. Uh, you have a middle-of-the-road regulatory uh, environment. So I feel very good about what's uh, uh, transpiring. And, uh, you know, we've had an outstanding 2019, and uh, it's hard to predict that 20 will be as good, but there's no reason not, not to see the economic progress continue. So even in your mind, like what, what you've gone and done, your experiences, and what you're doing right now with Virtu, uh, it's, it's, it's positive so far. Very much so, right? Now, for Virtu, we'd like the VIX to be higher, right? Virtu does well when volatility uh, is higher, and that's measured by, by the VIX. And the volatility has been, you know, historically low. And, you know, there's different theories of why that's the case. But clearly, the central banks have some direct, uh, uh, I think, input or control in terms of what the volatility will be. But, you know, we see, you know, just great economic progress here. You know, so you've had, you know, increases in multiples, but you've also had increases in earnings. And I think you'll get into 2020 and see uh, the earnings increases be strong and that you'll have a relatively weak uh, 2019 comparison set. The IPO uh, market, we've uh, gone through Lyft, uh, a, a number of other ones. Uh, WeWork uh, didn't really work out too good. Aramco, um, some news coming out on them recently about being oversubscribed. What's your feeling about where we are on the IPO side and will it continue as far as where, where you think we're at? They have revenues. Do they need to project more revenues? Do they have enough revenues really to be going public? I mean, I know you made some comments, correct me if I'm wrong, where it's much better on the public side than private as far as being able to predict some of this stuff. So I, I would say this. I, I think WeWorks is a line in the sand, and there's a period before WeWorks and after WeWorks. Uh, and we also understand that WeWorks was led up to by Uber and Lyft. And I think to say it very simply, if you're planning to go public in this environment now without a clear path to profitability, not, not revenue, but to profitability, you will have a difficult time. If you're trying to come public where you're profitable and you're growing, you'll have a very easy time, right? So that that line is there. Uh, so WeWorks had dramatically increasing revenue, but their losses as a percent of revenue uh, was also increasing. Uh, so that doesn't doesn't work, uh, and you have to show a path to profitability. So I think whatever bullions was in the IPO market is now out of that market and you're going to have a rational view of these companies. So I predict a strong IPO market in 2020. I don't think it'll be quite large as the IPO market was in 2019, but there are a lot of strong companies uh, that will come, come forward. Uh, but I'll repeat, if you don't have a path to profitability, uh, then now is not the time to think about it. Obviously, the the tenure we talked about 2003 to 2016, and and a lot of great stories in the book. 
market mover. You talk about and some great stories and obviously working with Zuckerberg and Bezos, etc. Um, it seems like uh, John Chambers is in the book as well from Cisco. Disruptors are a lot of the disruptors, obviously, from the tech side. You were dealing with personally, you know, through the NASDAQ. And uh, we know a lot of the disruptors that are out there in the marketplace right now and who they are. But from your point of view, um, who are some of the companies that you're keeping an eye on from a, uh, whether it's a disruptor right now in the market or or potential down the road? Uh, who could some of those be? Well, you know, this is Bob talking personally. So I, I certainly uh, always pay attention to what's happening in the biotech world that has the clear ability to change our lives, our quality of lives and our lifespan. And, you know, with the development of immunotherapy drugs, it's really been a phenomenal ride. I also pay attention to what's happening on uh, the climate side. And, uh, you know, when is the next generation of battery technology going to uh, come forward? Uh, we clearly have to capture carbon from the air and there's a number of very interesting companies working on that uh, carbon capture and storage technology, some of it direct carbon, some of it, uh, you know, associated with power plants. So that's going to be, you know, a fun nut to see cracked you know, at this point. We will figure out how to get the carbon out of the air through advances in, in technology. So we, uh, you know, I pay a lot of attention uh, to that. And then, you know, kind of related is you're going to see beyond Tesla, the next generation of uh, transportations coming to the market. That's going to be just very fun to watch. You know, you have Rivian, I think, is doing some exciting things. And in addition, we saw the Cybertruck last week. So just a lot of fun things happening. Great. Uh, the, the title of the book, Market Mover Lessons from a Decade of Change at NASDAQ, Robert Grayfeld. Thanks so much, uh, Bob, for joining us today. It has been my pleasure. You have a great day and enjoy the Florida weather. You have been listening to Small Cap Stocks Today, your best source for information on small cap stocks coast to coast with your host, Dave Donlin. Join us again soon for another edition of Small Cap Stocks Today. This program is entirely produced and sponsored by Cervell Group, which is responsible for the content. Opinions and information provided on this program are those of the guests and those of the respective companies they represent and do not necessarily reflect those of the staff or management of Cervell Group. Small Cap Stocks today encourages all listeners of this program to do their due diligence and research when determining investment strategies that will work for them or to seek the assistance of an investment professional. The guests of this program may have paid for its distribution and are not directly affiliated with Cervell Group or Small Cap Stocks today.